0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, February 26, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. Land use fights like the one that led a group of people to occupy an Oregon wildlife area may be inevitable, at least as long as regulators treat public lands as merely playgrounds for the wealthy. Randall O'Toole, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, explains.
1: The Malheur Wildlife Refuge is a large bird refuge in southeastern Oregon and the federal government has acquired many private ranches to add to the refuge. But one rancher, uh, Dwight Hammond, refused to sell to the federal government. He had 16,000 acres of land, and he was fairly hostile to the federal government and ran into a number of conflicts over water rights, uh, over grazing rights, uh, over a number of other things. and. Uh, A standard practice on both federal and private land is to do prescribed burning to improve the productivity of the land. And he did some prescribed fires that uh, unfortunately uh, lapped over on the federal land a few acres. One of them burned 139 acres. He himself, he and his family suppressed that fire on federal land. The other one burned only one acre on federal land. The federal government, partly out of spite for uh, his refusal to sell the family lands to the federal government. Uh, charged him with arson, and under federal law, uh, that's a minimum five-year sentence. So he and his son Stephen were both sentenced to jail for five prison for five years. Originally, the Oregon judge doing the sentencing said that was cruel and unusual, and he only sentenced uh, Dwight Hammond to three months and his son Stephen for a year. But the federal government came in and insisted that they be sentenced for the full five years, and they are now in prison for serving that sentence. Uh, on the day they went to prison, which was just before New Year's, uh, the, uh, a number of ranchers from states around Oregon came to do a protest. And at the end of the protest, some of them went and took over a, a then unoccupied, on the federal holiday, unoccupied building in uh, the Malheur Wildlife Refuge and said they were taking over the refuge. Uh, that, of course, led to the uh, recent death of one of the ranchers uh, in a sh- shootout with the police. And uh, most of the ranchers who were involved in that are now in jail, but there are still four left occupying that land. So, this, uh, you argue
0: that this kind of conflict is, in some sense, inevitable just by virtue of the fact that the federal government owns such a huge swath of the Western states.
1: That's right. The federal government has... Uh, owned these lands uh, since they essentially acquiring them from the Indians and uh, originally the federal government had a policy of disposing of them giving them to railroads giving them to homesteaders uh, and so on but uh... Uh, Starting around 1891, they started reserving lands from disposal. And today, there's 640 million acres of lands that are reserved from disposal. And so, instead of being managed as private lands in the marketplace, they're managed as public lands, which means they're managed as political lands. If you want something from those lands, you go to Congress and you get Congress to give you and your interest group either a discount to use the lands or you uh, get... Land's dedicated to your use and excluding other users. And because there 640 million acres is a lot of land, and yet it's a finite resource, it becomes uh, a polarizing uh, a situation where in order to get as much as you can, you take as extreme a position as you can, the environmentalists demanding everything, the ranchers demanding everything, the loggers demanding everything, and so on. And and so you end up with these polarized situations, of which this Oregon case is just the only only the most recent example. So in the past
0: 40 years or so, how have those fights played out?
1: Well, in the 1980s, the environmentalists developed uh, tactics of uh, of uh, peaceful civil disobedience. They would. chained themselves to bulldozers that were being used to build roads. They would climb trees that were scheduled to be cut down, knowing that if they were cut down, it would injure or kill them, and that the federal government didn't want to do that. And that raised a lot of attention to the consideration of old-growth forests, spotted owls, and things like that. And... And the West was primed to listen to that because 80% of the people in the West live on 1% of the land, the urban areas. And most of those people no longer get their incomes from mining, agriculture, or forestry. And so uh, they view those public lands as their private preserves. And they're perfectly happy to sympathize with the environmentalists. On the other hand, when ranchers try to do the same civil disobedience techniques to say they should have the right to graze their cattle at subsidized rates on federal land, uh, that's not as likely to get sympathy from urbanites who uh, view the ranchers as freeloaders for uh, putting their cattle out there and uh, conflicting with birds and other uh, uh, wildlife. Now, these are
0: people generally who only— Uh, regular interaction with cows is uh, in a supermarket uh, meat counter.
1: Yes, uh, or the dairy case. And uh, at the same time, 98% of cows, 98% of beef grown in this country are grown on private land and never see step foot on public land. Only the public lands provide only a tiny percentage of the forage uh, eaten by cattle, sheep, and other domestic livestock. So, Even though it's a huge amount of land, it's very marginal in productivity for grazing. And so, it really doesn't make a lot of economic sense to be having the the cattle out there. On the other hand, uh, if you're going to do it economically, there are probably some areas where it does make sense to do it. But... Uh, essentially because it's political, it's an all-or-nothing kind of thing as viewed by both the ranchers and the environmentalists. Either we get all the cattle off or we let them graze at the most sub-marginal places. Now, you've argued in, in at
0: least one of these disputes there really aren't any heroes in these in uh, these kinds of issues because you essentially have uh, conservationists who would like their preferences ratified uh, by the federal government and you have uh, – for-profit entities like ranchers who would like their interests uh, heavily subsidized by the federal government
1: everybody wants something for nothing in 1978 the ranchers lobbied Congress to uh, lower the grazing fee to about one-fifth of what it cost to graze on state or federal or state or private lands and so the ranchers are getting this, Grazing at a very nominal fee, and it still costs taxpayers five times as much as what the ranchers are paying to provide that forage, so they're getting heavily subsidized, but at the same time, environmentalists and recreationists have lobbied Congress to uh, forbid the agencies from charging fees from for anything except developed recreation you can you can pay a fee for a developed campground, but you can't pay a fee. They can't charge you a fee for hiking in the wilderness or skiing or uh, things like that, fishing, hunting for the most part. And so uh, the environmentalists, while they say they're doing it to save the environment, they also happen to be recreationists. They're getting their preferences, their preferred forms of of, uh, public land usage for uh, nearly free or free. Now, you said that ranchers had lobby the federal government
0: to reduce the rate that it would cost to graze their uh, livestock on federal, on federal land, which was one-fifth the rate at, that a state or a private landowner would charge. Why do states seem to understand or appreciate or make use of market pricing? In grazing, and the federal government does not.
1: Well, that's a good question. I've looked at state agencies, and there are actually more than 150 state agencies that manage land, and most of them are as bad as the federal government. Uh, they, their resources are given away to the powerful lobbies. They lose money. They've lurched from budget crisis to budget crisis. But a few state agencies do very well, and the reason there are two reasons why. Uh, first. Uh, the state legislatures fund those agencies out of their own receipts, and so they have an incentive to charge a a fair market value fee so they can get funding to to fund their operations. And second, uh, the courts have treated those agencies as fiduciary trusts. For the most part, these agencies manage land that were granted to the states by the federal government to use to produce income for schools. And the courts have said, well, that's a trust obligation. You have to earn a profit for those schools. You have to be transparent in how you do it. And you have to preserve the the asset, the corpus of the trust, uh, pre- preserve the productivity of the land. And so the trust managers have very specific obligations that are not... The imposed on federal land managers who don't have to do any of those things. They don't have to uh, 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 earn a profit. They don't have to be transparent in all their dealings. And so, uh, you end up with a lot less conflict over these state lands because their, their mission is clear. Uh, it's easy to test whether they're succeeding or not. Uh, if they aren't succeeding, the beneficiaries can go to court and stop them, and this is actually happening in Oregon right now uh, with some Oregon trust lands. Some of the beneficiaries are challenging them for not being as profitable as they could be. I think that if we're going to reform the federal lands, and we should follow the state model. That doesn't mean turning the lands over to the states, but turning them into fiduciary trusts. And if they were treated as fiduciary trusts, and if they were funded out of their own receipts rather than out of tax dollars, they would earn a profit. They would manage for whatever the public wanted the most, because what that would be indicated by what the public was willing to pay for. and we would have a lot less conflict with the users would have incentives to cooperate rather than incentives to polarize.
0: Randall O'Toole is author of The Best Laid Plans, among other books. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.